and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk on Topic, a show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. Today we're talking about the board game bubble. What is a board game bubble? Is there a bubble? If there is a bubble, is it going to pop? Has it popped already? Okay, those are a lot of bubble questions. And we'll talk about each of them from three different perspectives. How this may affect players, how it will affect retailers, and how it will affect designers and publishers. But first, as always, a thank you to our Patreon friends of the show, Adam Harrison and the SGC. And a welcome to our newest patron, Ron Nelson. All right. Welcome, Ron. Welcome. Welcome. We did... (laughs) Welcome. Welcome, Ron. I, you know, I listen back to myself sometimes and I'm like, these are not words that I say. And I'm not sure <laughs> if I just can't enunciate correctly or if I'm having like a stroke or something. I don't realize what I'm saying. But yeah, it's tricky for the news because I'm like, hmm, well, we'll just let that word pass over. We'll be, we'll be fine. Yeah, it's really hard when I do the editing for the news and I'm like, that wasn't a word. <laughs> Yep. And then I have the choice of like, do I interrupt Chris? And then I have to cut all this out later or just (laughs) let that one word slide. I usually like like 50-50 on stopping you. But I helped you this time. And that's why I like, it's fresh in my mind because I was listening to myself. And I'm like, huh, all right. Nah, I'm not going to re-record that. (laughs) So Fletcher, have you subscribed to the Dice Tower News yet? No. Why would I? (laughs) Yeah, who wants to listen to us? (laughs) (laughs) I got enough of you guys already. Fletcher, you get so much more information, though. I I don't know. I mean, and you'll get to listen to all the words I don't say. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. I I I already get the uncut version right now, though. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get to hear us say MSRP like 800 times, though. We should say it like MSRP. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that. I think we can can make it a thing. And the MSRP is $24.99. You can't convert... An initialism into an acronym. Uh, I prefer. I, I disagree with you, and I do it asapishly. <laughs> that I, I couldn't work asap into a sentence fast enough, which is ironic because it literally stands for doing things fast. Anyway, this is not an off-topic episode. <laughs> <laughs> we promise it'll take us 150 weeks to get there again. I don't make that promise at all. We'll do a clip show before we do another off topic. Off topic. Yeah. Oh my goodness, this is gonna be a great one. This is I'm I'm gonna We're have prepped. fun with this. I know. <laughs> I've been actually so on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday I work from home, and I get a bit stir crazy because I don't see a lot of people. And you guys are basically the first people I talk to on Monday nights. So I, I talked to Sydney for about twenty minutes as she comes home, and like, oh, I have, I have to go record. She's like, okay, but yeah. So now <laughs> I'm a little bit slap happy. What do you guys know about the board game bubble? Very I little. I don't know anything about the board game bubble. Do you think that a bubble in the board game industry is even a possibility? Sure. I, don't I mean, see it's always not. a possibility. It happened a... in tulips, so why can't it happen in board games? <laughs> the tulips is that like find the bubble. Do we want oh, to yeah, talk about is. cryptocurrencies? No. No. Actual no, no, no. bulbs. Yeah. Actually, Fletcher, why don't you tell the tulip story? Because I think it's a fascinating one. I okay, think I heard well, it on a Planet Money once. <clears throat> well, if... Anybody who has an econ degree probably studied this at some point in time. But essentially, uh, there was a giant tulip bubble in the... Oh, I forget what year. Someone's going to like... I'm not even going to say year because it's going to like be totally wrong. like the 1800s somewhere. I yeah. want to say no, like it was near more, 1850s. It, I thought it was I like 16. more recent than that. No, what, no I I'll thought Google it. Was, it. Keep well, talking. Somebody will Google it. All right. It. Um, yeah. Anyway, so there's a massive tulip bubble. So there's tulip bulbs are for sale. Um, and then 
rare varietals became more and more rare and expensive, and people were essentially investing in tulip bulbs uh, to the point where tulip bulbs would cost as much as a house or even more, you know, back in the day. Um, and then the tulip bubble collapsed, and then all the varietals of tulip bulbs that were worth, you know, thousands of dollars or whatever. I don't think this took place in the U.S. I feel like it took place in Denmark. Somewhere in Europe. I think it was yeah. Denmark. Um, well, it's the Dutch market. Yeah, the Dutch market. It was the 1600s. Oh, so I was close. 1600, Denmark. So college, yay. Um, <clears throat> uh and oh, but there was a book published in 1841 highlighting the craze, which yeah. is where a lot of our knowledge about it comes from. So I'm not totally off base with my 1850-ish. <laughs> or, or your intro to economic class in college, you know, whichever one yeah. you happen to take or read. So, and the, the bubble essentially collapsed and all these people who invested, you know, thousands of their, you know, crowns, I guess, since this was in Denmark... Now their tulip bulbs were literally worth pretty much what you would pay for any kind of tulip bulb off the street. It was they were essentially worthless. So you and there's like a very interesting graph. You can see it just go like up and up and up and up and up. think about like the housing market and then boom, just like straight line down, like crash, nothing. Um, so that's a very brief primer on the tulip bulb craze of the 1600s. And it's a great intro to this episode because the reason some people think that there's a bubble in the board game industry is because we're seeing that kind of growth right now. So if we're looking at the board game industry as a line chart and the number of dollars in that industry, it's a parabolic growth. So it's it's just, you know, each year getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're going to we're going to look deeper into this cuz I have some yeah, I have some opinions on this. And I will stress, I am not an economist. I did not take Econ 101, I don't think. I took a Business 101, but not an Econ 101. And all of this is just my opinion. But I'm going to try to put some reasoning behind it as well. And I you do have a I degree in economics. I didn't take either. <laughs> <laughs> but I am not an Wait. economist. <laughs> and I have Wait. nothing. I took no business classes. I took no economics. I'm just here for color commentary. <laughs> Perfect. Wait, Fletcher, you actually have an economics degree? Yeah, I sure do. All right. That's, that Weren't will you come his in handy, boss? maybe. Shouldn't you know that? <laughs> well, I didn't hire him for his economics thing. He said he worked at the Apple store, and I said, that's cool. Sure, come over here and write some code. <laughs> <laughs> he also looks sad. He's like, I just want to write code. I'm like, all right. <laughs> the tech industry is bizarre. <laughs> it really is. So this actually, the topic... I've been listening to the whole board game bubble thing for a few years now. Uh, but this topic came from, uh, I think it was an email, but it might have been a BGG post by Corey Nealon. So thanks, Corey. And I'm gonna just going to read this out because I think this is a good intro to why some people are concerned. So if 2017 was the year for new games, 2018 was the bigger, louder sequel. Thousands of new titles were released in 2018, with some coming and going so fast that even professionals missed the release. Many of those games got pushed to the clearance racks faster than ever before. During the winter holiday sales, some games released as recently as September were already in deep discount. This is a very interesting and perhaps frightening. What does this do to people who wait on game releases to hope for discounts later, with the artificially deflated retail sales up front, causing the publisher to not reprint games? Perhaps I am not correct, but the bodies or but this bodes ill for the industry. 
This might cause even more publishers to head to Kickstarter. Will the understanding they w- with the understanding they will make X games for Y backers or X backers, I guess, and be done. No hope of reprinting, which increases FOMO, with um, which creates a vicious cycle. Thought: Games need to be great. Agree with you. Game. The great game systems, great art, great production, great rule books, and great hype slash media support. I agree with all of those things. I think there's a number of ways that hype and media support can happen, but I do agree. This isn't bad for the consumer, he says, but it may be bad for the budding designer slash publisher. But what's but that's why bubbles pop. And the point of the thread here, everyone jumps in and there's too much stuff. A lot of stuff gets skipped for the hype stuff instead. Publishers of skipped stuff can't stay in business, and a lot less games get made the following year. So all of these things are true, but I don't think there is the possibility of a board game bubble for the reason uh, that Fletcher just basically stated. And really, you look at any bubble. Nobody, yeah, not nobody. Most people are not investing in board games. I don't so know. You're wrong. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Ha- bubbles don't have to do anything about investment, number one. All right. So think about the dot-com bubble. People were not investing in, like, websites. Think about, before the show, the uh, we were talking about the, the video game bu- bubble. People weren't, like, investing in, like, video games. Like, not on the consumer side. Like, the businesses, yes. But, like, on the consumer side, no. They were not buying video games to hold on to to then later resell, like, tulip bulbs or bitcoins or gold this was like an an a a business investment opportunity right so from a business investment opportunity you could say that the market is being flooded with a bunch of new businesses trying to capitalize on the hype that is now board games which will then later pop like the dot-com bubble all right so first of all the tech bubble was a massive overinvestment from capital venture companies investing in these tech sites. Any tech site could say, hey, look, I got pets.com and now I can raise, you know, $250 million in capital overnight when I don't actually make any money. And eventually all of those companies went out of business, which caused a huge tech bubble crash. And then for a little while, it was hard to get any tech companies up. The video game one, that one's a more interesting one and probably a closer parallel to what we're talking about. So do you have information on that one that you want to cover? Uh, no, I just know some general information about it. That essentially, it was Atari would just release any kind of video game and hype it up, even though it wasn't a very good game. And it was just flooding the markets with these mediocre to bad games. Yes. And what ended up happening, and this is from the Wikipedia page on Video Game Crash of 1983... Um, this occurred in 1983 to 1985, primarily in America. The crash was attributed to several factors, including market saturation in the number of games, consoles, and available games, and waning interest in console games in favor of personal computers. Revenues peaked at around $3.2 billion for the video game industry in 1983 and fell to around $100 million in 1985, a drop of almost 97%. The crash was a serious event and an abruptly ended what is retrospectively considered the second generation of console video gaming in North America. This one is, I think, closer to what potentially could happen in board games. Yeah. But I think there are a lot more things going on as well. For example, the personal computer. 
Um, a lot of people attribute this to ET and the flop of ET. Now, that it, was just like the hype. That was like that yeah, was it was that mostly was the coincidence. End of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the the idea that the personal computer came out, um, arcades were a big thing at the time. But I don't know. And video games just weren't as good as what arcade games were becoming at the time. So there are a number of reasons where like the consumer interest just shifted. And it shifted incredibly abruptly to something else. This is... I don't know that this can happen... Well, I don't think it can happen to this effect in board games, though. Something would have to draw the interest away from board games in a massive way. Maybe virtual reality? Well, I mean... So, you can you can think of any kind of, like, peak in interest into anything as a potential fad, right? Like, when does a fad... When does something that have a lot of interest, like something, I'm going to start over. A fad <laughs> is something that you get a lot of interest in and then it like goes away relatively soon. Right. right. You can get a lot of interest in something and then it just kind of like su- sustains that interest, like mobile phones or, you know, perhaps virtual reality. But things that are fads like Tamagotchi or Pogs, like those have a spike in interest and then they like, they go away. So have we missed? So is board games the, the, golden age of board games which everyone is really basically calling right now is this a fad or were we beyond that like we've been doing this Catan came out almost 20 years ago right and that was sort of the start of that board game growth can can a fad last 20 years and all of a sudden like everyone's like wait a minute no this is i'm out of here i i don't know if you could call board games like a fad really like you think about pogs right pogs have been around since well, I mean, Pogs have been around, I think, since the 70s or the 60s. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if someone who is into Pogs starting in the 60s or 70s or, hell, even 80s, they're like, is this a fad? Like, they've been in this for, like, 20 years. But then just wait till 1995 rolls around and then, like, boom, that's a fad. <laughs> Kitty, what do you think about all of this? I have some questions. Okay. <laughs> um, And because I am a huge nerd... I would like to know where we're getting this data, because that's what I have been doing here while I've been very quiet, is trying to find actual data on the number of games that are published, how well they're selling. I I feel like I get these numbers quoted at me all the time, but I don't know. Aside from it looks like people are just pulling them off of BoardGameGeek, and it's not anything really official, and I'm seeing two different sets of numbers, some of them with peaks around 2016 and some of them still growing. And I don't know how they're getting where this is coming from or how it's being presented to us. So there's a few places that record this kind of stuff. Um, But I will admit that I'm trying to see if I can. Did you? ICV2.com. This is a business website for essentially pop culture stuff comic books uh board games uh, basically games and comics and we can get a lot of information from this site they track distributions uh essentially sales and stuff distributors will report how many of a particular not necessarily how many particular game is made because that's sort of kept secret we don't know a lot about what companies are making how many of which games. We know that count is relatively small. Typical print run for a game that you would hear talked about is somewhere between maybe five and 10,000. 
I think that the initial terraforming Mars run was like 10,000. The initial wingspan run was 10,000. So the numbers are relatively small. But when you aggregate them across all of the different things, and you can get that from, there's, there's five major distributors in the U.S. that do most of the game uh, distribution. And then now we have Kickstarter, which gives us a huge visibility because Kickstarter is fully reported. We can see what's going on there. And you can almost see that parabolic growth in Kickstarter as well on a bunch of different Kickstarter tracking sites. So I would love to bring up actual data sites of where it's coming from, but I've seen similar growth patterns over and over. I don't know. It's hard because I just, you know... I'm looking at Google here and I see two different completely like separate charts and I don't know if either of them are accurate. So, well, they could be tracking different things as well. So, no, and- they literally both are labeled with the same. It is board games published per year with years at the bottom. And they have the exact, <laughs> and I don't know if one of them has like analyzed if it's like logarithmic versus literally. I don't know how they are, like if one of them is just a different data set that they're looking at, but I don't know. Um, But my thought on this is, you know, there was this market that didn't exist and it found a foothold and gained a lot of popularity. And yes, it looks sort of parabolic, but it also looks sort of, you know, like it came out of nowhere, but then it's starting to taper off, which might be, is that a log I don't remember my graph shapes, but it, it, looks, it looks like, like it might jump up. It looks like very quick growth, but I if it starts to taper slowly, it just might be it's finding its footing. And I, need to, I need to see this link, too, because I have to look at it. Because oh anything can look logarithmic if you zoom in uh, enough. In, in the show notes, if you take a look at, and anyone who's following along, um, it is the Board Game Geek... Um, the board game geek bubble, I think, is the name of the thread. Is there a board game board gaming bubble? Is the name of the thread. Okay. So, and that's just one one graph. And for those who are not looking at this, the graph essentially starts in seventy three. And I th- believe the ones this I'm is seeing starts in the nineties. Drop sure, the sure, link sure. in our. Chat <laughs> I'm just. Here. I need to see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> this particular graph starts in seventy three, and. It, I'm not even 100% sure what the numbers on the right are, but they go from zero to 5,000. And this is the number of games published each year continues to increase. Here's a graph created by Matt Leacock from the Board Game Geek, Board Game Geek database that shows the number of games added per year up to and through 2015. Now, just because a game is added to Board Game Geek doesn't mean it was published in that year. It just means that people are adding these games, which now the numbers make sense. Now, I don't know how 1973 even has data since Board Game Geek didn't exist until, I believe, the early 2000s. But in any case, this graph, basically less than a thousand games were added up until about the year 2000. Then we broke a thousand a year. And around year 20 or 2005, we broke 2000. And then right around 2013, we broke, what is this, 3,700 or so. So it's, and now in 2017, 2018, we're around 5,000 and and counting. I, I honestly, I can't do a search higher than 5,000. I think BGG stops at 5,000. There's definitely an increase in the number of games that are published. However, there's also a huge number of increase in the number of games that are being played by people. Right. And I think that is interesting. There's also a huge case of like well just even population right from 1973 to today population has like basically doubled in the united states 
So that's that's true. part of it. And maybe board gaming as a hobby, like maybe back in the day, you owned like you know four board four board games or five, and three three of them were Monopoly, Risk, and Stratego, and then you had like <laughs> two other ones that were like a little bit kind of like off the wall. But like now, people are like, oh yeah, I have like Chris. You know, he himself is like probably. <laughs> you know, added, contributed to this chart. If you took out Chris yeah. from this chart, it would probably make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> so is there I a board game bubble? I, like, well, yes, because Chris is buying all the games. <laughs> I basically account for 1985. But, yeah, and, well, and that's the thing is, I don't... Will there be more games published than anyone can play or review or keep track of? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Is that bad for the industry? I don't think so. When does it become bad for the industry? When so bubble expert, that's what I'm calling Fletcher right now. <laughs> <laughs> when would we worry about a bubble like forming in the board game industry? Well, I mean, so this is what people get paid a lot of money to predict, right? So <laughs> basically <laughs> that's why you don't do it. It's why you don't get paid for it. <laughs> that's why I don't get paid for it. But when you start to see overinvestment into something that is a sign of a bubble when people start jumping in, right? Like when you see tons of uh, businesses being formed and just creating any kind of whatever crappy game because it might sell if it has good enough art and if they have enough big marketing push behind it. Um, that is when, you know, you can start to kind of like maybe worry a little bit. So you're saying so, if I go ahead. Oh, so I something that i've noticed about bubbles if we're talking um kind of faddish bubbles things that are more like beanie babies i don't know it's people who are buying the item not for its like purpose purpose but to resell it right that's an it investment is, yeah that's yeah. an investment that's an investment bubble yeah yeah so you know we're not seeing that kind of bubble at all in board gaming there might be some uh, kickstarters or a few i mean I, I think you I, see that on a micro level, on a per game level. Right. On a per game level, and it's things that are getting a lot of hype that you know are getting small print runs. And you have to be really involved in the industry to do that. And I don't think it's a long-term investment payoff. But I guess they never are. It's not like anyone yeah. nowadays is selling Beanie Babies for hundreds of dollars. Anyone yeah, who it, held on to them too long, the bubble burst. I mean... Right. And it never recovered. Yes. Yeah. Like... Potentially, I I heard a story. I think it was I forget actually where it was NPR or something like that. But Lego, did you hear this, Chris? Lego Legos? is actually a very solid investment. It has if you buy a Lego set, you don't open it, it increases in value about ten percent year over year every year. That's amazing. Yes. And actually, that's that's not the only industry that does it. Um, Magic the Gathering. We talked about. I think we talked about it on the show. Yeah. How they had to be very careful about how the cards in the secondary market acted. They needed to retain value, but not flood the market to where the bubble would pop. And they managed that very, very carefully. And now Magic is a great investment. Um, I, I wouldn't say great investment. Don't go out there and just buy Magic without knowing what you're doing. But usually, like uh, most of my friends that it's play Magic on a regular market. basis... Yeah, but they make their money back on it. They know how to play that market where they what they spend, they make back in selling at the right time. So it's, I, I think, like I said, I think I can see this in smaller 
in individual games. So Arcadia Quest, for example, it came out, there was some figures that were hard to get. If you were to have bought those and sold those at the right time, you made money. If you held on to them longer, suddenly they lose value because people lose interest in that particular game. But it's not like they're losing interest in every game. It's just that particular game's bubble popped. So I think there's a difference in somebody who's buying, who is part of the hobby, who is doing research, you know, because there's always people who are investing. Investment, like there are people who that is their whole job is they buy and then sell things. But if you are a person off the street who hears, I'm going to go buy these Starcadia Quest figures to resell them, and everyone in the world knows I can go buy a tulip bulb and make more money from it two days from now. That's when it feels more like a bubble to me. This is like a difference between like an insider investment versus a outsider. Everybody knows this is happening. Yes. I, and I would agree. I mean, because the investment bubbles are the easiest ones to see. And you can kind of tell. It's like when the uneducated person gets involved and then the masses start getting involved, it's creating this bubble and without people really having a lot of background knowledge. But, I mean, Fletcher brings up a good point, though. The video game bubble of 83, that wasn't an investment bubble. It was There was something else going on. And there was no one factor that caused that to happen. But it definitely, like, where did 97% of demand go in three years? And, and you know, it sounded like he gave a lot of, you know, different places where it did go. It, you know, it it's how you're tracking. It's how this data works. Because it's not like the video game industry died. No, it came it back. It came back. Yep. And, and there was another. Maybe, you know, the, the market needs to find its footing. It needs to self-correct that maybe it was an overinflation in popularity because it was so new. It was so exciting. And that wore off. And then it found its footing of, where the people who are actually interested in gaming then found a manageable growth rate. I don't know. A small, a smaller bubble happened in the 90s, mid to late 90s, and that was around role-playing games. The late 90s were a terrible time for role-playing games because, and I don't have all the exacts, and if somebody does and has more like information on this, please email us, but... Wizards of the Coast had just bought Dungeons and Dragons, and they created a new edition, third edition, um, eventually within a few months became 3.5. But they created an open license for the system. So anybody could use that list system to write their own games. And everybody did. They just flooded the market with book after book after book of all of these different role-playing games that were based on the D20 system. And in response to that, I think people just got overwhelmed with, I don't even know what to where to start, where to begin. I'm just going to ignore all of it. And it it collapsed. Like the really the role playing industry as a whole had a low point in well, late 80s, early 90s had a pretty bad time, but like late 90s it was pretty bad as well. And that's another situation where people weren't trying to invest in it. I think it was just there was a lot of really bad stuff on the market and people didn't know how to sort through it all. I think that you know something that keeps coming up is when there's something new. There's a new company. There's a new technology. It's something that's flashy and exciting and everyone wants to get in on it. It creates this market that doesn't really exist, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a market for it still. So I maybe that's just a bubble. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I so, just described so it. So I think, 
I think we're coming around to bubbles, an investment in something or supply without demand is probably, that's probably a universal way to describe a bubble, right? There's there's too much stuff. And for some reason, regardless of why people aren't interested in it, the demand just goes away. Does Kickstarter solve this problem for the board game industry? Because it flips the equation. It creates the demand before the supply. So in that case, you can put something out there. And as long as enough people want it, you're only making what you need to make for those people. And if that's the only way board games get created in the future, we can say that you know, the traditional board game model, that bubble popped. But I don't think that we're going to just stop seeing all games being made because we have things like Kickstarter that allow us to fund this without the risk to the publisher and the game designer. Thoughts? I think I think if Kickstarter were being used the way that I <laughs> think it should be used, Uh-oh. that... <laughs> no. I think if we're using it as a pre-order site in which, you know, people weigh in on like, should this be made or not? That's one solution. But I I think it only solves a problem for the designers and the buyers. It cuts out retail, which yes. is a huge problem. I yep. think. So we mentioned at the top of the show that we're going to look at this from three different perspectives. So let's look at those perspectives and let's do the easiest one first, which is the player. I posit that the players will not be affected by any board game bubble popping. And I say that because, A, let's say 2019, well, it's 2019 now, let's say 2020, (laughs) there's 10% of the games that were created in 2019 are created. First of all, that's still more games than anyone could play. But let's just say it was like a huge 90% bubble pop. Basically, that means you can go back and play all the games that you've bought up until that point that you've been having sitting on the shelf because you haven't had time to play them because there's been so many games. Or you can play games that you really enjoy multiple times. Or the 10% that do get through the 90% drop, those are going to be really good games that if you pick them up, they will keep your attention for that time. And it depends on how you're defining this 90% drop. Are we talking the number of games published or are we talking about the number of like so the number of titles or the number of literal physical copies of the game? Well, that's a great thing, but let let's just say <laughs> let's say the number of titles. The number of titles drops. How does that affect it? And then we'll talk about the number of physical copies that are made. So the number of titles that's easy. You can still, you know, like there were probably a lot of games you weren't interested in picking up. Maybe the if it's the 10% that are getting through are really quality games, you're not missing out on that much. Yep. Now, the number of... So the tariff war with China goes worse and worse and worse, and suddenly it's too expensive to print board games anywhere, which, honestly, this could be a potential problem. Um, let's say that board games cost twice as much for the exact same thing that we could get last year, next year, everything is just doubled in price, which will drive demand down significantly. The titles may not change, the number of titles, because we haven't adapted to it yet, but the number of games that can be printed and sold will change quite a bit. What happens then? Well, that's not even <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> I have no um, idea. <laughs> that's the honest yeah. answer. Well, but if you think about it, supply, the well, Cost if goes the supply up. drops, the cost is up, 
then I think, you know, for the average gamer, they're probably going to buy like less games. They're going to buy less games. Or no games. Or no games. And that's about it. It depends if the if the demand is inelastic or not. Is this a given good? You have to define your terms. Well, I mean, I don't know what a given good is. You define your third terms. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of different ways that you could possibly look at this. So it, it's hard. It's hard to know, right? So my point was more that... So right now, I'll just pick easy to talk about numbers. There are a thousand titles released every year. And there are 10, let's say ten thousand. Got to be no, realistic. You're here. making. You're just adding zeros <laughs> to my hypothetical. <laughs> All right. It a just makes it harder to talk about. There's a thousand titles, um, released in a year, and there are ten thousand copies of each of those titles. Now the market drops, and there's only one hundred titles released, but there are a hundred thousand copies of each of those games. The number of games physically around is different, but they're all being put out by Asmodee, the only huge company that is capable of publishing these games in the tariff market. So they're making huger quantities because then it's cheaper to get them in bulk. They're being hugely massively published. I don't know. I mean, that just means everyone is playing the same 10 games, but... Which isn't necessarily bad. Honestly, I would love to be able to... I think that's (laughs) less bad than if the sudden drop-off of both titles and the number of copies. So if there's only 100 games released and they're still only making 10,000 copies of them, I think that would create this, like, feel of loss for the community. Yeah. Well, I do think that if the price of games doubled, I think a lot of people... A lot of people think that games are too expensive now. I think a lot of people would stop buying games. They there might be a secondary market for renting, or you know, you go to your game. That's the point of the game store now is it becomes a game library, not a game store. Um, I think there's a definite risk there where you could just have people like, yeah, this is too expensive. I have enough games. I don't need to invest in this hobby anymore. I think that is probably the biggest thing that could happen, and I think that's the biggest thing that could affect players is if the price ends up going up on these things for whatever reason. Tariffs is just an example. It's a close to home realistic example right now, but I also don't think, you know, we're not going to get another 75% increase on tariffs probably. But in any case, that's, that's a possibility. Let's look at the other side of the equation, publishers and designers. How would a bubble, because I really think that this affects them more than anybody else. They are the ones that are taking the risk, designing games. If you're a designer, you're a game designer, this hobby is growing, you, you love games, you want to go out there and design, design a game and put it into the market. All these people start doing this. It's kind of the equivalent of saying, oh, beanie babies are a big thing. I like cute little stuffed beanie animals. I'm going to go collect them. It's not exactly equivalent, but it's it's similar in that everybody who has a game idea, there is an avenue to publish that game idea right now. And if everybody takes that, that's going to saturate the market and make it very, very difficult for publishers and designers to actually be able to make any money on this, stopping designers and publishers from doing what they're doing, decreasing the number of publishers and designers, and decreasing the number of titles. I don't know if anything you just said made any sense. (laughs) So, I don't know. I mean, there was a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Um, Because on one side, you have 
you know, this market is full of a lot of publishers. A huge increase in the price of games might stop indie publishers. It might make it really hard for smaller companies, for people who have one game idea and they're trying to self-publish it. Why would prices to, go up? Well, don't, yeah, take price out of the equation. So prices Well, that's where remain. you started your hypothetical. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you said <laughs> Sorry. This. Sorry, going away from prices. Now, just okay. looking at the publisher's designers, if prices remain constant, but we get more and more publishers and designers into the system. Well, that's going to affect price. <laughs> If you're flooding the market with lots and lots of titles, people are going to have to make choices. The way that you get people to choose your game is you make it the least expensive option, which causes everyone to drop their prices. Which actually hasn't been happening in the board game industry. As we've mentioned many times, the board game industry is sort of broken. It's very broken. (laughs) But the price of games have been going up along with the manufacturing costs. And they can do that because of things like Kickstarter, where they know where their margins are going to be. But game prices are not going down. I think it depends on the kinds of games you're talking about. Because there's, it's a hard industry to talk about because it's everything from, you know, these $10 card games that I pick up all the time to Gloomhaven or not even Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven's a bad example. What are these Mm -hmm. Kickstarters that you're, these Simon monstrosities that you can put up to like $600 easily into Kingdom Death Monster, where the maximum pledge is $1,500. Yes. And to try to lump together this industry of, you know, role-playing game books where you can get the digital copy for $15, or you can buy the leather-bound edition, special edition, signed by the author with a hand-illustrated front cover for, you know, $1,000. (laughs) Like there's, there's just this huge variety of like, whatever you would like to spend, whatever you want to invest, there's a level for you. And I don't know how to kind of, because I I do think some of the maybe, I don't want to call them lower end, some of the smaller price point games are more normally affected by like market Kind of, you know, like they're they're priced more like we want to move these. We're making a profit. I don't know, but some of these other games that are only coming out on Kickstarter that can only be made because of the pre-order model, they're not going to be as affected by you know shifts and stuff. I would agree. Yes to all of that. I think Kickstarter has its own bubble problem, and that's just there's so many games on Kickstarter that. And this is, I think, your major issue is there's so many games on Kickstarter that many of them get overlooked, passed over, because they're not as glitzy and shiny as the big companies that are on Kickstarter selling their games there. And that, I think, is a separate issue that we talked about for several episodes and aren't allowed to talk about anymore. (laughs) If you want to hear me rant about it. (laughs) (laughs) But it is a sort of bubble of its own, where you can only handle so much before people just aren't interested anymore. And that could be, you know, the Kickstarter bubble could pop if people just like, you know something, I am just so sick of Kickstarter doing what they're doing to the board game industry. I'm just never going to go there again. That is not only bad for Kickstarter, that's going to be terrible for the board game industry. Regardless of how you feel what Kickstarter should be, it is the reason that the board game industry has grown so much over the past five years and why we've gotten such unique games that we would have never seen before because traditional publishers couldn't take the risk on something like a Gloomhaven or a Kingdom Death Monster or 
you know, even something like Seventh Continent, which is just a bunch of cards, it's so many cards that, you know, no publisher can take the risk on that without knowing what they're going to sell up front. Retailers. Retailers. They're the ones in the middle. They're going to get screwed no matter yeah. what. And, th- and they are now. Well, because of Kickstarter in some ways. And some ways, yeah. Like, you know, Simon has cut retailers out of their business model almost entirely. Um, not, I don't know that that's true. They do, because they don't do, most of their games do not go to Kickstarter. Like, I think it's something like 20% of their games actually go to Kickstarter. They're just the flagship ones that bring a lot of publicity to the company. The, most of their games do go directly to retail. They're not, um, they don't go to Kickstarter. But for those big games. It's hard for me to say because, you know, now I've been doing you know, the news, I'm watching new releases every week. I'm looking at the publishers. I don't see them publish stuff very often that isn't coming through yeah. Kickstarter. I wonder if Cool Stuff Inc. is, well, yeah, because we get our new release information from Cool Stuff Inc. Basically, that's where I we look at it. I try to look in other sources, too. It's just, once again, you know, there's not like a lot of reporting of these numbers. There's not you know, I would have to start talking to these manufacturers and retailers, distributors, all myself to figure out, number one, is something an actually new game? Is it being reprinted? Is it there's so much there? All these levels of trying to even just get this raw information is very difficult yeah, to know what's and, happening. Yep. And the system isn't isn't set up really well to work with it. So there's not and a lot of coordination or transparency or anything. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't say that Kickstarter isn't necessarily killing the retailers. And I know some retailers hate Kickstarter. I know some retailers hate Amazon. These places aren't the main reason. They're kind of, you can point to them because it's easy. The hardest thing for the retailers is predicting what's going to sell. And for the retailers, having so many titles and not knowing what's going to sell that's really where the risk is at because they're they're the end of the line you know essentially they're paying the most for the game before the consumer does and they can't make big bets on these things cuz their margins are quite small they have to pay for space the you know they do have the competition from kickstarter and amazon but even if they didn't you still have this how much do i order versus how much stock am i keeping problem and because we don't have a good way to predict what people are going to do outside of Kickstarter, that's a problem. Because retailers can take pre-orders, but they rarely say that you have to upfront pay for your pre-orders. I can go in and say, yes, I definitely want you know two cases of Keyforge, but I'm going to order it from two different other places. And oh, those ones were able to deliver to me faster and cheaper, so I'm going to cancel my order at the retailer. And now they're stuck with that because they didn't take my money upfront like Kickstarter did. So that model, that retailer model is really set up to be the riskiest piece in this equation, I think. So I have some questions about um, how retailer, like what information retailers get about games when they're trying to stock, like, are they just seeing manufacturer descriptions or designer descriptions? Like, or I guess publisher, that's what I was looking for. Are they seeing the description from the publisher? Are they getting actual like gameplay? Do they have to go do all the same things that I do? Or do they get some sort of like fun insider information that I don't get to see? A little bit of all of it. So (laughs) (laughs) retailers have access to the same information that we have, but primarily where they get their information from is the distributors. So like I was talking about North America, there's five major distributors and 
typically retailers will have relationships with, you know, anywhere from three to all of them. And they do that because the distributors will have catalogs saying, here's the new things. The distributors oftentimes point out, these are the new hot games. These are the things that we think are going to sell. These are the things that we, because they're buying ahead of time too. They're getting, they're not pre-ordering though. And this is where the system kind of breaks down, (laughs) which is sort of going a little off topic, but just to get back around to it, retailers are going to order from distributors. Distributors say, okay, I have all these orders and they're going to order from the publisher. The publisher already had those games printed and made up. So because the typical distribution model is the publisher predicts how much goes, how much needs to get made, they work with the distributors to say, how many of these do you think you're going to order? Okay, I'm going to make that many. If the distributor's order changes later, whether up or down, that's bad for the publisher, especially if it goes down. It's like, wait, you wanted 10,000 of these crazy bird games, and now you only want 1,000? Like, now I have 9,000 I'm sitting on. Or it can go the other way. You said you wanted 10,000 of these crazy bird games. Wait, you want 120,000? Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that. So that's that's really where the problem is. Back to the bubble, though, maybe if the bubble does pop, maybe retailers actually benefit from that. Because if there's a lot less titles out there, there's a lot less things that they have to like sort through to say, I think this game is going to sell. As long as the stuff that's getting through is actually quality stuff. The the risk of the bubble popping is that we go from having, you know, lots of games down to like 10% of the t- titles we had released the year before. What if they're all bad? Yeah. Well, the it's other one... It's not necessarily the people who are making the best games, who are making the good choices, are going to be the ones who make it through. They might be working on really slim margins. They might have really good ideas, but they've put a lot of investment into something that's now not there anymore. Yeah. So the most dangerous way, you just triggered this, I don't know why I didn't put this in the notes, but the most dangerous <laughs> thing that could happen as far as the bubble is not the industry. It's not the doubling in prices. It's not the too many games. It's not too few games. It's player interest waning. It's player interest going from 100% of the current group, which is quite small, to you know 90% of the industry just decides, I'm not interested in playing games anymore. Then you have a bunch of publishers that are sitting on games that can't sell, so they go out of business. You have a bunch of retailers that have nobody to sell to, so they go out of business. You have a bunch of publishers and designers that have great ideas, but sorry, there's nobody who's interested in your ideas. That's where the real danger to the entire industry is, is if we just lose interest in board gaming in general. And that can happen because of, you know, price fluctuation or game saturation or something like that. But if we lose interest in that, that becomes a big problem. Dice Tower Con last week, or two weeks ago before, um, Eric Lang was asked this question, um, how do we grow the industry? And he threw out some numbers, which I thought were interesting. And I'm going to paraphrase these numbers because I don't know they're exact and to your point, Kitty, I don't know what the sources is, but somewhere along the lines that there's about a hundred thousand people in our industry that are like buying games on a regular basis. It's it's a relatively small number. There's about three million that are buying like a game a year or something like that in in the industry. There are seven billion people in the world, and every one of those people has played a game and has enjoyed playing games. The industry is incredibly small with a lot of room for growth. So if there is a bubble, I think the industry right now is too small for that the player interest to wane. And as long as player interest doesn't wane, I think we're still in the situation where, yeah, 
a lot of publishers are going to go out of business because they made games that nobody was interested in or couldn't rise above the media hype of all these other games. But there will still be a lot of good games out there that your retailers can sell, that your players are going to enjoy playing. And it becomes a publisher-designer problem. It becomes a player problem when the players stop caring about the industry as a whole. All right. Whew. I don't know that we did this topic any kind of justice, but... (laughs) (laughs) But we talked about it. We did. And hopefully it, it was... It gives you something to think about. I don't think we're, I I really don't think that we're in any kind of risk of, you know, people walking away from the hobby. But if we are, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I go back and I play one of the 400 board games that I haven't got a chance to play yet. And and I'm like, oh, I'm I'm okay with this. Um, And I say that and I say this year, I am buying 5% of the number of games that I bought last year. So Maybe that is the start. Maybe maybe people like me were, you know, we're holding up the hobby and then we're finding like, no, too many, too many. I can't get any more games. So I say it, maybe I am the beginning of this. It's bad. All right, let's go to some listener mail before I get too off track. Um, Let's see. Uh, Fletcher, do you want to read this one from Robert? Robert Doolin? Yes. Okay, I will read it. Hi, guys. Love the show. In reference to the big game collections, I have to say I spent two years collecting all sorts of games from Kickstarter and stores, especially due to your Kickstarter show. Sorry. My my wallet says, thanks for ending that. No problem. (laughs) I really love big games and don't mind buying several, even if I may not play them for a while. I don't spend money on alcohol or sporting events anymore or even the movies as we have young kids, so I need something to get the thrill i need something to get the thrill from which is buying and eventually playing all these games especially as my kids get older from now on i just need to make sure i get the right theme games for us my 10 year old is reading the lord of the rings books so i'm considering the ffg journeys game so he is so as he is so invested in that universe for instance can we pause there for a second because lord of the rings at 10 first of all i commend your son yeah, I was 20 when I tried reading those books, and I still couldn't. Actually, I probably was 30 when I tried reading those books, and I still couldn't get through them. I like the story. Ten is the perfect age to read The Hobbit. You just don't like books. The Hobbit, the Hobbit is fine. That's yeah, The, the Hobbit is fine. That, the Hobbit yes. is written for children. <laughs> the, Lord of the, the Hobbit is part of the Lord of the Rings universe. Sure, sure. And it's a well-written book for people to consume and read. The rest yes. of them are not. But well, <laughs> I do like disagree. the world. <laughs> I, I, I know. I'm, I'm definitely... We won't have this argument again, Chris. This is our next week's topic, The Lord of the Rings. We literally could t- do a topic on that. There's enough games where we could do a topic this on that. This is going to be we- Patreon-only content, is me and Chris arguing <laughs> about whether The Lord of the Rings is a good book or not. All right, let's get to his question. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, since starting the Dice Tower News, have you... Have your downloads gone up for TGT? Also, after doing DTN for several shows now, do you get enough do you get enough enjoyment producing it to make it a long-term thing considering the time that you must spend working on all your content? All right, I will answer the first part. This is yes. this is a Chris and Kitty question. <laughs> That's why I have you read it. <laughs> this is a Chris question. You um, think I see numbers? I don't look at numbers. <laughs> no, well, yeah, so the numbers the numbers yes. Um, when we took over DTN in January, there it was essentially a dead podcast for about a year. and But there were still a number of people that were subscribed to it. 
those, I think a decent number of those people have come over and started listening to CGT at least a few times. Um, we've seen probably about a 20% bump in numbers for since we've been doing it. Um, honestly, that's one of the reasons we wanted to do it is just kind of get our name out there a little bit more. The after doing several shows, I would several shows are about what 30 now, I think. Um, I don't know, Kitty. What is your you you answered that second part? <laughs> you know, it's a hard question to answer because it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work both on the front end and the back end. We have to do a lot more editing on that one. We have to do a lot more research in the show notes. But also it's just kind of become part of my routine. Yeah. You know, it's once it's settled in your schedule, it's easy to keep something up. It doesn't feel like a burden. So, yeah. Well, I mean, as long as Chris is still doing it, I'll probably keep doing it. Yeah. So, and I'm basically in the same situation. So, we're recording on Monday night. Um, this drops Tuesday morning. Actually, it drops late Monday night, early Tuesday morning, because I can't trust our scheduler to drop it <laughs> in the morning anymore. Um, but for this episode, like, it's literally 9.35 p.m. Central Time. We will be done recording in about 10 or 15 minutes. It'll take me about an... Eh, half hour or so to edit the podcast, put the blog post together, and then essentially hit submit. I won't, I'll take an hour break after we record because I can't go directly into editing it. But that's it. That's all we're doing. And the prep for this show was about an hour before we started. I took some bullet points down and I grabbed some feedback from questions that we had coming in. So that's the prep is really easy. DTN. It's will start Wednesday. I will start mm -hmm. researching news stories. On Thursday, I will go through the hotness and basically do research on all of those as to why they are in the hotness on Board Game Geek. Well, I'll, once I have that, then I write the scripts for all of that because DTN is a fully scripted show. It, we tried doing it a little bit more freeform like we do this. It just didn't. We're bad work. at it. <laughs> yeah. So it is a fully scripted show. And what that means is we're reading this and we're trying to make the reading not sound like reading. Um, we're still not very good at it, but we're getting better. Mm. And <laughs> I think people are just getting used to how we read. <laughs> or, yeah. And when we mess up, we'll reread th something. So I don't do any editing on this show. It's incredibly rare that we'll actually go back and edit something here besides taking out silences. If we have like a long pause, you guys won't hear that. But on DTN, it is... Probably, I would say an hour long process. No, maybe an hour and a half long process to to edit twenty five minutes of recording down to a fifteen minute show. Now, Kitty's taken this over from me. What about a month ago? Yep. And so now you're doing that, which helps for me because I'm doing most of the scripting. Kitty does the um, her Kickstarter segment and the new and upcoming releases, and I do the the news and the hotness. So because of the way we split up the work. And because we are responsible to each other to be ready to record on Thursday night or sometimes Friday morning, and we record with, even though we could record separate because we're never and really we talking to occasion. each other. Yeah, I think twice in all of them we've had yeah. to do that. We set a time for ourselves to actually record with each other because it motivates us to keep doing that. It is a lot of work, though. It is a lot of work. So if you haven't listened to the Dice Tower News, like I said, it's a 10 or 15 minute show. Um, it's it worth listening to. It shouldn't sound like it takes as much work as it does. <laughs> it, it shouldn't. Um, and it's a lot of good information. I mean, at the very least, you're going to get insights on 
you know, some fun news stories. I try to find some fun things for the news. Uh, the hotness is always interesting to see what people are talking about on Board Game Geek. And then here's some games worth checking out. It's like that's really what we're trying to do on the news. So at least for the rest of the year, I I told Tom, I'm like, I can commit to a full year. And at the end of the year, we'll reevaluate. I didn't and know see that. <laughs> if you want to keep doing it. <laughs> I learned something in this segment. Well, I didn't want to say I will do this indefinitely, but I did yeah. want to give him, hey, you've had a couple misfires or like three hosts last year and none of them made it past like four or five episodes. So I wanted to say I can dedicate, I can commit to a year and then, you know, we'll see how it goes. So because he was a little hesitant. He's like, yeah, this it's having trouble getting it going. So, you know, what makes you guys different? So we actually did an audition show for him and then he seemed to really like that. So. We started almost within like a week of him listening to the audition show. All right, Robert, thank you for the question and thank you for listening to DTN. At least I assume assume you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kitty, let's do one more and then we will be done. From John T. Thomas, who I will assume is Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and I'm pretty sure he's going to be really sick of hearing people say that, but I don't know. <laughs> he chose to put the T out there. <laughs> After listening to the episode on competitive games, I was curious to find out if there are any games you love that have a competitive scene, but you love if there are any games that you love that have a competitive scene, but you love the games so much you don't want your love to be ruined by a tournament. For example, I love Star Realms, but I'm hesitant to play in a tournament because the scene is so competitive, I don't want to have a bad experience with a fellow player to have it put a bad taste in my mouth about a game that I love. I'm going to let you guys answer this first. No. all right fletcher uh well i don't really play competitive or tournament style games so the only competitive or tournament style game i play is keyforge and i play it in tournaments and competitively for the tournament for now at least yep this actually haunts me so (laughs) the lord of the rings card game i really like the card game Part of the re- and I and I collect the card game. I every week, uh, well, not every week, but every month, if there's a new pack, I I have it. So I have every card for the Lord of the Rings card game, not the Lord of the Rings card game. I'm sorry, the um, Game of Thrones. And but I was gonna say that's a really like weird admission to suddenly yeah. make now. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings card game is a co-op that if I had gotten into it way early on, I probably would have collected it too. Fantasy Flight and their living card games, I swear. But anyway, um, but Game of Thrones is a great game, but. Playing it, I have a hard time playing it because I want to play it as if I was playing it competitively, even though I will never, ever go to a tournament for this game. I think that the competitive scene for the game is just broken, and I listen to competitive podcasts on this particular game. So I don't play it because there's a competitive scene, even though I like it so much. But I love the pre-made decks because then I can just play the game and I don't have to worry about making a deck that's you know subpar to being competitive. Um there's other games that have been like that as well. The Star Wars LCG, I used to really like that. I played it competitively one time, and I'm like, yeah, that just wasn't for me. Like, I, it's people are just way too... The game's too cutthroat, and it, it stops being fun. Where Keyforge, the reason I like that is because it, it kills the cutthroatness. Occasionally you do. You do see it. Like, there are some p- players out there that are really, you know, hunting down the, the most brutal decks, but most of the games you play, you're just going to be playing someone else that opened a deck and they just want to try it out in a competitive scene. And that's what I like about it. So any other game, though, I I try to avoid 
tournaments as much as possible. I played some Dice Tower tournaments when they... Dice Tower. Um, Dice Master <laughs> tournaments when they first came out, when people were still friendly. I had a great time with that. As soon as it started getting competitive, I... I dropped away from that as well because it it just turns me off of the game when my memories of it are just bad play experiences from people being over competitive. Good question. Thank you, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> I had to tell Chris who that was. Well, I knew once you said it. You're All right. right. <laughs> let's let's get done with this show so I can edit it and post it and do all the other things that I promised and to I do. And I watch that... Stranger Things. It's and not too late to start Stranger. one episode in my sad old person life. And I can tell Fletcher to download World of Kings. Anyone who wants to be play a little mobile Oh my mobile gosh, World stop fishing for <laughs> mobile game people on our podcast, Chris. I need to build my guild. World of Kings. Server S7. All right. Gen Con is coming up. We'll be there uh, Friday, 8 p.m. at the stadium, rating room 8. Um, and I think after Gen Con is Gamehole Con, and that's in October. So things are winding down in the con industry. I like that. You can follow us on Facebook at slash Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, Twitter at Tabletop Game TLK. Kitty is Lawful Good Mom. Fletcher is Netflix. I am Game Master Chris. You can also help us out on Patreon at TabletopGameTalk.com slash Patreon. Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Thanks for listening, and remember, we love your feedback. So email us with comments or questions about today's topic at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. Finally, a huge thank you to our patrons, Adam Harrison, the SGC, Jason Strong, Terrence Miltner, Stephen Seitz, Michael Ohl, Brian Arnold, Sean P. Kelly, C. Marie, Rudy Liu, Benjamin Heimowitz, Jerry Wang, Stephen Phillips, Caleb O'Brien, Justin Willard, Christopher Dong, Jason Marks. Jeremy Fisher, David Redkey, Nick Quickstra, David Sellers, Jason Rodney, Michael Yanikowski, Miles Clark, Cindy Loom, Phil Schwartzel, Ann Reynolds, Eric Huffman, Adrian Dong, Christopher Vincent, Nate Baz Lintham, Sean Peck, Eric Selander. Mike Smith, Trevor Davis, Tim Vernick, Chris Lowe, Joe Hoover, Timothy Gross, Glenn Cotter, Jesse Walkowiak, Emil Jewel Jacobson, Marina Stevens, Brady Meltzner, Gregory Huber, Don Gilstrap, Stephen Judd, Leanne Verholst. I did it. First time. Woohoo. Christopher Letko, John Lewis, and Joe Rackstad. Until next week, keep playing games and having fun. So Zachary is doing the whole planking thing. He's going to be crawling in like a week. That's what you think, but they don't. They do that they, for a long time. <laughs> you should tell them that the fat is over. It's done with. <laughs>